gangs, drugs, fighting. Uh, if you add in a what? pandemic to the old Miami Vice shows, it's the it's the, unfortunately the worst of the worst behavior of all different aspects of humanity in one place. Good afternoon. All right, that is Neil Belenke. He is the mayor of Belcara. He was speaking earlier today on Mornings with Simi, describing what he says is happening in the beaches in that part of Metro Vancouver as more and more people are trying to get outside, trying to distance, or maybe not so. He, again, referred to it as the Miami Vice, if you remember that TV show, but throw in gangs and more drugs and a pandemic at the same time. Uh, He was also asked about exactly where people are coming from and why this is happening. It's not in Belcara proper. It's actually in Port Moody, and it's one of the Metro Vancouver uh, organized areas. And so we support Metro Vancouver, of course, in trying to help to to manage access from Belcara. But uh, Port Moody has really got the lion's share of the challenge in trying to trying to uh, monitor and uh, deter all the illegal parking and access that overburdens the park and causes a lot of this risk. So after hearing Mayor Belenke talk about that, we wanted to talk to the mayor of Port Moody. And Rob Vagramov is joining us on the line now to discuss this even further. Mayor Vagramov, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Jill. Thanks for having me. So what's your response when you hear uh, Mayor Belenke say, we've tried to crack down on the Belcara side, but Port Moody's not doing anything? Well, I mean, I, I don't think he said that. Uh, I, I also really don't think that it's uh, sort of a more drugs than Miami Vice sort of situation. I think anybody who's been to Miami uh, would tell you that. You know, we have an overcrowding situation at, at the uh, Metro Vancouver Managed Park there. Uh, Port Moody City staff are working really hard to prevent the kind of consistent overcrowding that can shut down a park. And I'm doing everything I can with city council to keep these parks open because they're they're a fantastic asset that belongs to the public. Uh, he's saying that he sees fights. He sees open drug use. He has seen or heard of people opening up bear spray on the beaches. So are you saying that's not happening? What, what, what I am saying is that there is uh, definitely an overcrowding situation. I know exactly why people come to Sassanad Lake. You know, it's gorgeous. It's close by. And usually it's uh, quiet and serene. But nowadays, I look at those photos of a huge crowd that's all hot and claustrophobic and sweaty and gross. And so I I wonder why anyone would want to go in there, like, for their own sake. It's exactly, uh, even though we're being told that being in outdoor spaces is safer given the pandemic, you're right, not when we're talking about groups like that. It's just kind of gross even in the best of times, you know, big crowds out in, in in the sun there. It's like when you get on an empty bus and you're like, nice, and then someone gets on at the next stop and sits directly beside you, even though there's nobody else on the bus. That's kind of what's going on at Sassanat Lake right now, except for it's not a bus, it's a global pandemic. And, uh, you know, our, our province is double the size of California. We have over 20,000 lakes. Uh, I would encourage folks to zoom out on Google Maps a little and, uh, and get out there. Uh, he was saying that on the Belcara side, they've increased fines for illegal parking. They're actively towing vehicles that are illegally parked and using that as a deterrent. Is Port Moody doing anything to crack down on illegal parkers or people that are overcrowding the area? Oh, yeah. You know, the, the, the road outside of the park is really the issue because uh, it's not as easily controllable as a parking lot. And so the parking lot is kind of used as a floodgate to not overcrowd the park. See, if the, the park is overcrowded, then it risks being shut down because of all these issues. And so Port Moody City Council has, uh, I, I believe, quadrupled the fine amount. Uh, the towing is uh, in effect. I think we've towed more cars this weekend uh, than, than ever before there. 
Uh, and again, the goal here is to keep the park open because if it's just flooded with people that, uh, you know, aren't zooming out on Google Maps, uh, then, yeah, it, it, we, we have a risk of shutting it down for everybody. It sounds like, though, the way he describes it, that that if it hasn't been shut down with what's happening there right now, what's it going to take? No, that's, that is a valid point. I mean, there is there, there have been threats hurled at bylaw officers. A lot of our you know, parking signs are thrown uh, to the side. I think the people that sort of laugh at that and, and, and do that kind of stuff, um, I, I think ultimately are the ones that are going to shut this down for everybody if, if that sort of thing continues. So how long do you, do you wait and see if this continues or what happens next for, for the oh, people? Man. Well, you know, Metro Vancouver Regional District is the one that controls Sassamat uh, Lake. Um, like I said, I'm going to be doing everything we can to, to keep the parks open because I could only imagine what would happen to our municipal parks if the regional parks closed down. Uh, we've put a little bit of uh, pressure onto BC Hydro, hoping that they'll, they'll be a little bit more open with their parking lot capacity to try to spread open demand. I've got some, some parking issues happening in, inside of Port Moody on some of our other beaches. So it's a lot of, a lot of work being done in the background. And, uh, you know, it's really going to depend on how fo- folks play this out over the next uh, next few weeks here. Uh, the next couple of months, probably, looking at the weather. That's true. Uh, now, has this also been, has there not also been an E. coli outbreak in that area? Uh, yeah, I heard of that. That's something that happens uh, quite often with the goose poop. Uh, as you know, it's you know it's called Sassamad Lake, but uh, compared to Bunsen and and all the other you know twelve-ish lakes in the Lower Mainland, I think Sassamad is a bit more of a pond. <laughs> so with the hot weather and the goose poop, it kind of creates uh, creates a, a sort of a perfect recipe for. Uh, outbreak. So if you need one more reason to stay away from Sassamad Lake, it's the goose poop. Uh, so what do you do next? Because I get what you're saying, that steps have been taken on the Port Moody side as well to try and deal with this, to try avoid shutting down the area altogether. But it did seem, uh, the, the mayor of Belcara did seem to be saying he didn't think that, that Port Moody was really responding as well as it could, that the people are still coming from that side. Well, if, uh, if the, you know, I, I, I haven't heard that from Mayor Belenke yet. You know, he, we, we have had conversations where we've been really, you know, it's been both both sides have been helpful. I've been on the phone with uh, Mayor McHugh and Evan Moore as well. We're all trying to work together to, to solve this one. Uh, if uh, if Mayor Belenke doesn't think that we're doing enough, uh, he can he can reach out to me over email and, and I'll send him all the details of all the steps that uh, council has taken. I, I haven't heard that from him directly, so I uh, maybe you could play that specific clip where he says that we're not doing enough, but uh, I haven't heard that from him. Um, what about the idea? We've seen the other parks starting up yesterday. Some of the busier parks, uh, BC parks now require day passes and there's enforcement. Is that something that could be considered at this area, which is clearly quite popular? Well, that's a Metro Vancouver decision, again, because we don't control that park. It's kind of complicated. You know, we got Sassamad Lake in Port Moody, controlled by Metro Vancouver. Metro Vancouver also controls Belcara Park, which is mostly in Port Moody. You've also got Bunsen, controlled by BC Hydro, which is in Anmore. So it's a whole hodgepodge uh, of, uh, of, of sort of government entities trying to control this thing. And it's really complicated to, to wrangle them all together. All right. Well, we'll wait and see what happens uh, with the beaches and the overcrowding. Uh, Mayor Rob Vagramov, thanks so much for making time for us today. Thanks so much. Well, we have been following along the House of Commons committee today. Mark and Craig Kielberger testifying in the WE charity probe. Let's bring in Andrew Russell, a national online journalist with globalnews.ca. He has written about this as well. Andrew, thanks so much for being back on the show. 
Thank you for having me. Uh, So much to uh, unpack at this point uh, from the first part of the testimony. Uh, Let's start with the fact that one of the Kilberger brothers started by saying, had we known this was going to happen, we would never have picked up the phone because it has turned into uh, something where children that would have been uh, the benefactors of this, now they they won't be. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's been a, a long afternoon. They've been testifying now for, for three hours, and they're still going. Um, today was the first day we got to hear from Mark and Craig Kielberger into this whole affair. And uh, among other things that they said today was um, that I thought was important was that, uh, you know, they wouldn't receive any financial gain from this sort of massive, you know, over $900 million federal grant. And uh, they said that they just uh, they reached out because they wanted to help. Uh, We also heard, though, from the former chair who resigned, who said that one of the brothers hung up on her. The other demanded that she resign after the board started asking for financial records and that those records weren't being turned over, which and they were questioned about that, too, saying, how can taxpayers of this country trust you if you won't even hand over the financial records of the company to your board? That's right. Uh, Earlier today, we heard from Michelle Douglas, who is the former uh, board of directors for We Charity Canada. And uh, she, you know, she told the the MPs, uh, you know, something uh, quite different. She said that she resigned um, back in March because she was no longer able to do her job. She said that when we uh, began laying off hundreds of people um, in the uh, spring, she had questions and demanded to see those uh, financial statements. And yes, she said that's why um, one of the Kilberger brothers uh, hung up on her. Now, they disputed that today and so they had a different um, recollection of sort of events, but uh, they respected what Ms. Douglas had to say. Uh, what's your take on the answers that they gave when they were questioned about the amount of money that has been paid to members of the Trudeau family? I know they, they did confirm that Margaret Trudeau wasn't paid until after Justin Trudeau became the prime minister. Uh, they said that people are not paid for being We Day speakers, but they are reimbursed for other expenses that go with that. Right. Uh, so that was that part of the testimony was rather confusing. They didn't uh, they didn't actually have a detailed sort of they didn't lay out exactly how much each um, member of the Trudeau family had gotten paid, but said that, you know, Margaret Trudeau had attended 28 events over five years for which she was reimbursed um, close to six thousand dollars per event. Um, now, if you do the math, that works out to about one hundred and seventy thousand dollars. So if it's, it's unclear if that's a new figure or if that's on top of what was already disclosed by We Charity. Now, uh, We Global News did reach out to the We Charity today to ask for a detailed breakdown, and they said they're only going to give that to us after the testimony today, which is also what the uh, Kielberg brothers said. So I think there's still going to be some more to come out about the um, financial statements there. Uh, right, and and the the uh, me- committee members that were asking about that, I believe, also asked for a detailed breakdown, which they said they would uh, he would endeavor to do his best to get the breakdown to be able to to provide that right it was kind of a it was kind of an awkward thing where they, everyone was trying to do math and they couldn't figure it out so they just said you know what we're going to get those details after the testimony <laughs> it also took far longer i think you'll probably agree than it should have to figure out the day uh, there was the question about when did you invoice bill morneau because we know bill morneau reimbursed the forty-one thousand dollars the morning before he appeared before the committee the question was when did you invoice him and it took quite a lot of going around and around before they realized the question was it was the day before or whatever the date on the day before was. So what do you what do you think about that? Though, so we now have learned they invoiced him the day before, and he paid it back on the day of. 
Right. Yeah. No one apparently had uh, access to Google there in front of their, uh, <laughs> uh, the computers. Um, so it's still, you know, it's a, just a new piece of information that we got today. I'm not sure how much, it, it, you know, it moves the needle there. Um, there was some discussion more about the, the details. Uh, Craig Kilder said at one point that 41000 uh, it, it seems high, but he explained um, some of the costs. He also said that the entire um, uh, trip was actually organized with Bill Morneau's uh, wife. So it was still, you know, we got some more uh, pieces of uh, the puzzle there, but it's, it's still unclear what that's going to mean for this going forward. And as far so as far as the money, like you said, we're not a hundred percent sure if the hundred and seventy thousand dollars roughly is on top of the other three hundred thousand. Although I can see a lot of reports, people reporting on this, they're they're suggesting that it is on top of that. Uh, do you think will we get more information on that as this continues, as we continue listening to their testimony? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we charity agreed that they're going to send us a statement later today. And both Mark and Craig Kilberg said they're going to release um, more details on that after the testimony. Uh, so we'll see how that goes forward. Um, I would caution against that number. It's really unclear if those two numbers are one on top of the uh, one on top of the other, or if they're the same um, payments. It's it's not just payments and speaking fees, but also reimbursements. So there is a lot of confusing language that's being used there. And Andrew, I know you have to run, but one other question, because they brought this up, the fact they took issue with the We Charity Foundation being called a shell company, being called a real estate holding company. You've reported on that. I think they even named Global News saying they took issue with the way that it was reported. What is your response to them saying, no, it's not a shell company, it's not a real estate holding company? They did. They had uh, some very, very strong words for us. Now, we you standing by our reporting, I want to point out that we have not made any corrections to that piece. We stand behind it. We reported solely what was in the, uh, the CRA documents when We Charity Foundation um, was created in 2018 and then when it became a registered charity in 2019, where they specifically said this would be used to hold real estate for We Charity and other assets. Now, if, you know, it's it's one of those things where once the story gets out there, you know, opposition, other, you know, MPs can tweak the language and call it a shell company. Uh, but, you know, we did go through and they specifically told us that this company has no assets. So, I mean, we, uh, we stand by that story. All right. Andrew, thanks so much. I know it's a very busy day for you. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to uh, join us to talk a bit more about this. No problem. Thank you for having me. I want to shift gears, though, and talk about a story. And this is something that happened in a virtual meeting with Vancouver City Council last night. The City Council's Standing Committee on Policy and Strategic Priorities held a meeting and they passed a motion that looks to shift police priorities and funding away from things like mental health emergencies, social issues, and instead have a community-led approach dealing in these areas. But what exactly does that mean? The motion was originally brought forward by Councillor Jean Swanson, moved by Councillor Pete Fry. It calls for a timeline, a budget and a plan to deprioritize policing as a response to mental health, sex work, homelessness and substance abuse. And again, shift that funding to community led groups. Again, what exactly does that mean? Let's bring in Dr. Kelly Sundberg, Associate Professor in the Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University. Dr. Sunberg joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being here. 
Thanks for having me, Jill. I uh, wanted to touch base with you and talk to you about this. It was a, a motion at Vancouver City Council that passed, and it has to do with uh, the, the title they've given it is decriminalizing poverty and supporting community-led safety initiatives. But really, it's about redirecting what police do. And as far as police responding to mental health calls, to wellness checks, and getting that to, to be a more community-based response. So what is your response when you hear uh, about a council wanting to make that shift? Well, I mean, we've seen Vancouver uh, making some other changes. Uh, I believe last week, where uh, the street checks were were outlawed, or with the hope that that would be impactful on the police board uh, and the city council for Victoria, similar sort of moves. Um, you know, I think that uh, time will tell if, if how this works. Um, the The notion of putting more funding into um, public health to mental health services, addiction services, uh, treatment, detox, all of that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I do question how this will have an impact on public safety. Um, you know, how, how much thought and uh, study has gone into the the impact, the long-term impact on removing funding from police and, and re focusing this. One of the interesting parts of the Vancouver motion was uh, the suggestion that uh, when you dial 911, you'd have police, fire, ambulance, and then a a fourth option being some mental health response or something like that. Uh, That's, you know, in in theory, that sounds great. Um, And I think that there definitely needs to be some changes. And uh, I applaud Vancouver for exploring changes. It's it, uh, I imagine there are a number of people who are quite nervous about the idea, but uh, you know, it's change has to happen. Uh, this is one approach, and time really will tell how that uh, plays out. Do you think police are being asked to do uh, too much? I mean, we've heard from the police chief in Vancouver for years now saying that their job, a big portion of the officer's job, has become mental health responders. Are they being asked to do too much that's outside the realm of what should be the focus of policing? Absolutely. Absolutely they have. I think policing across Canada, uh, police services across Canada have increasingly become uh, expected and in many respects, unfairly expected to address concerns that really are dealt with by social workers or public health nurses or other mental health and addiction specialists. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, there's there's attention being given to this. I really do think that the definition or defining of the role of police in Canada, from Vancouver to Calgary to Toronto across this country, needs to be visited. And I think personally, I think it's time that just like other professions, such as lawyers and doctors and nurses and teachers, police need to have a, a professional college, if you will, uh, a professional association that defines what is the profession of policing, a self-governing body that uh, clearly articulates what it is that the police do and, and what it is they don't do. And um, that I, I believe that will uh, help alleviate a lot of the concerns with uh, allegations of excessive force, um, uh, discrimination, systemic racism, and these sort of issues if uh, policing moved to the next phase and, and truly became a 
uh, a profession like lawyers, doctors, teachers, architects, the list goes on. So having like a British Columbia College of Policing or something like that, similar to the Law Society or the College of Physicians and Doctors, would be the next step, logical step in my mind. Uh, but I think this is, I think Vancouver is, it, it, it's great to see that there's discussion around and, and exploration of new ideas. If this approach will work, I am a little skeptical, but time will tell. It is. I mean, it just seems like it's such a balancing act. And you mentioned that idea of, of a 911, another option for mental health, which I think a lot of people would think that's definitely worth exploring. But unfortunately, because we focus so much on calls that have been made, perhaps where police are being viewed as using too much force, uh, all it's going to take is one call where a nurse, a public health nurse is being is sent to a scenario and been put in harm's way or injured or hurt, then I would think there would be a, a backswing saying, well, why weren't the police there? Police are needed in that in those types of scenarios. Yeah, exactly. And that's my concern with moving funding from the police budget to other uh, agencies. I don't, because if, if another agency, just like you said, if a public health nurse is, you dial 911 and it's the fourth option and a public health nurse shows up, and I think in many cases that's, going to be a great option um if the police are are defunded or, or funding part of their funding is, is taken away uh their ability to respond to help that public uh that public health nurses is, is going to be diminished so that's why i think that these are significant significant changes and reforms that take a lot of thought and study and i fear that a lot of uh of the decisions being being made across this country with regards to police reform are being made uh, more for political purposes, knee-jerk uh, reaction to to what are concerning incidents, but a, a taking an evidence-based policing approach is what is really needed now, and these are things that can't be rushed into. I mean, it is public safety and security at stake. So I think it's important to have reform, but I also think it's really important to take an evidence-based approach to it. Do you think it's too much? Does the response go too far in that all of the calls for defunding the police or shifting funding to other areas? It doesn't seem like there's a lot of conversation about about diversifying the police force, as in maybe the police force, there is the mental health unit. There are people who are trained as mental health responders, but are also police officers. It doesn't seem, or at least I haven't seen, the conversations on maybe we change the makeup of the force. Yeah, from, when we look at the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, uh, some other international examples, Germany, uh, that there's tiered policing, so not all police are the same. You have different tiers of police. So you have, in essence, maybe patrol officers who are paid quite a bit less than a general duty constable would be who are paid differently than a, a detective. And also there's different entry points into policing. So when you join a police department, you can join a different levels of the agency and in different roles within countries like the United Kingdom. I think that's the way to go. Um, the UK College of, of Policing has has done an excellent job. They have their direct entry detective inspector. They have a direct entry superintendent. They do have specialized rules and they have volunteer police that are full, full fully empowered police officers that are volunteers trained the same as police, selected the same as police. These are models, I think, need, that need to be explored. Um, I'm very concerned 
that some of these decisions or, or, or potential changes to police are being made in haste and are not being thought out enough and that examples from other jurisdictions, such as the United Kingdom is the one that really stands out in my mind, um, aren't being explored for uh, uh, close enough. I mean, we are. I'm involved in, in some very uh, high-level discussions with, with various groups here in Calgary, with including the police, looking at different models. Uh, and it's a very broad group of academics, um, professionals, legal experts, police, community uh, community people. I think the same has to be done in other jurisdictions. Um, otherwise, um, there can be some really dire consequences because of good intentions that have really serious unforeseen consequences to these decisions. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Dr. Kelly Sundberg, thank you so much for taking the time with us. I appreciate it. Anytime and thanks for having me. Well, we started the show today talking about some of the overcrowding we're seeing in some Metro Vancouver beaches, uh, some concerns and complaints uh, being lodged about uh, White Pine Beach, Sassamat Lake, parts of Belcara, Port Moody, and both mayors of uh, Belcara and Port Moody coming on CKNW today talking about their concerns, saying they hope that the areas won't have to be shut down, but there are certainly concerns of congestion and the things we absolutely don't want during COVID-19. This comes, as you know, we also have the day passes now in place for six BC parks for people wanting to go out to go for a day hike or to visit those parks. Some concern about that as well. But it's all about getting out there and discovering the province as we are being encouraged to do, but in a safe way way. Let's talk now to Maya Lang, VP of Global Marketing with Destination BC. Maya, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's all about safety this summer and this idea of the staycation. And even though we're already at the end of July, uh, how are we safely exploring or how are people being encouraged to safely explore parts of BC? Well, I think we're asking uh, British Columbians to get out and and enjoy the province and enjoy the outdoors. And Dr. Bonnie Henry has been uh, an adamant supporter of of getting out and and being outside. Um, But I think we're asking people to do that, um, you know, just do that responsibly. So traveling safely and responsibly this year, uh, planning ahead, you know, being respectful of the communities in which you're traveling to, traveling in smaller groups, you know, taking time to do the things that you would do in your own community um, that you do those as you're traveling around uh, around the province this year. And do you have concerns about certain areas that are typically destination places, be it the Okanagan, Sunshine Coast, places where we're seeing you know, ferry reservations are booked and they are they are places where we're unfortunately we've heard of, of bigger crowds gathering, people maybe not following the rules? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's why, you know, we're encouraging people to get out and explore other areas in, in British Columbia. We have such a beautiful place um, here in BC. Uh, and in fact, a, a survey done among Canadians, uh, you know, identified British Columbia as the most desirable place to visit. So, uh, you know, we're in, we're in a very fortunate situation to have a province um, as beautiful and as large as we do. And so we are really encouraging British Columbians to get out and explore a new place perhaps this year, um, take, you know, 
know, more trips, but take perhaps smaller trips, um, you know, get out with your RV or, or, or go camping or do something, you know, do something different. Stay, uh, stay at a hotel in one of our, in one of our city areas. Um, I think the one thing that has been really incredible to see is to see how the hotels and the attractions and the experience providers in tourism around the province are really stepping up and taking really um, significant measures to make sure that people stay safe and they stay, uh, you know, stay, um, uh, yeah, stay safe during during COVID. So we've seen really great examples around BC of of how um, how everyone's stepping up to to make sure that the experience is safe and, and comfortable. Um, but as you said, also you know, making sure that uh, residents themselves make sure that they're taking the necessary precautions as, as well. Uh, are there any places that you're still uh, anticipating or seeing that perhaps the locals don't want people gathering uh, or don't want to, don't want too many people visiting? Well, you know, we've been doing a bi-weekly survey of BC residents for the last couple of months. And the thing that we're seeing is actually that concern is decreasing. Um, so we're probably at about the 50% mark of people who are feeling comfortable with having visitors from outside of their community uh, traveling to their community among BC residents, uh, and so that's um, and that's been steadily declining from you know from a couple of months ago. So that's really positive news. I think the further we get outside of BC, um, people still feel sort of uh, a sense of nervousness and a sense of hesitation um, about you know welcoming people from the from the US or or from our overseas markets. So, um, but you know. Generally, people are very receptive and, and welcoming of, uh, of British Columbians traveling to their to their communities. Um, what we're suggesting is that uh, people make sure to contact the business ahead of time, that they're aware of. Um, you know, that the, that the business is open, um, what the precautions are that the business has taken to, to support, um, to make sure that the experience is safe and everyone remains healthy, um, and also just making sure that people understand what the experience is going to be like so there's no, uh, no disappointments and, um, yeah. So, so, uh, so, yeah, so generally, uh, to answer your question, generally we're seeing that uh, BC residents are, are very comfortable with having um, British Columbians travel to their communities. And are there any parts of the province that are being kind of pushed even more or, or places where maybe they don't get a ton of tourism, typically in, in the summertime, that would like to see more tourism or would like to see people come visit? Well, I think the the one thing that is maybe a surprise for your for your listeners is that our big cities are actually not doing um, as well. Uh, I think that's one of the things that we had anticipated coming into, or, or kind of as we were, as a as the pandemic was uh, unfolding, is that people were saying that they were generally nervous about traveling to to um, to cities and metropolitan areas. But um, that was a global, you know, worldwide. That was uh, some of the some of the trends that we were seeing early on, um, and. And so our cities have not been, you know, doing as well. However, I do know that the cities, the hotels, and the cities and the attractions have been taking enormous measures to make sure that people are safe and and stay healthy. Uh, during their stay. So um, it, it really is, you know, our, our cities of Vancouver, Victoria, Richmond, um, you know, that are, are seeing, you know, low numbers. Um, and so that's where we're really encouraging BC residents to think about getting to a hotel, take an overnight trip, you know, that the luxury of having someone else take care of you, um, you know, as, a, as an idea to get away. And of course, also, there's lots of opportunities, lots of things to do all around BC, but perhaps people aren't thinking so much about staying in, in Vancouver. So, um, or 
coming to visit Vancouver. Um, and so, uh, or Victoria, as I said, or, or even staying in, in Richmond and checking out the dumpling trails and the exciting restaurants, uh, restaurant scene in Richmond. Um, so that's one of the things that we're, um, that we're actively promoting uh, as well is, is considering staying in a hotel and taking a little, a little trip to one of our bigger cities. We spoke with the, the Hotel Association not that long ago, and the numbers were pretty devastating as far as looking at some of the hotels in cities and, and the vacancy rate. And I guess part of that is just making sure, like you said, that people know hotels are taking those measures of sanitation and distancing and making it safe. They definitely are. And I think, you know, the the leadership that's been shown by the hotels uh, around the province and by the hotel association has been pretty incredible. Um, I think, you know, among the first out of the gate to really demonstrate uh, the, what, what they're doing. Um, and so, again, I encourage um, anyone who's feeling a bit, a bit cautious about that, I encourage you to contact the hotel and understand what, you know, what measures they are putting into place. Um, but uh, because that is definitely, uh, you know, some people are concerned about that. So, um, so again, I think the the, the leadership that this uh, that this industry has shown is uh, is pretty remarkable. And how are things going as far as? And I think we talked about this before. The in the past, we have been very dependent on visitors from the United States and international travelers, and now British Columbians trying to fill that void. Yeah, well, I think one thing um, there's probably I think maybe uh, your listeners may not be aware that um, uh, the tourism industry in British Columbia is a 21.5 billion dollar industry in in 2019 figures. Um, it is uh, you know it is an industry that supports uh, communities all around the province and in, in every corner. Uh, it employs about 166,000 people, um, and we're forecasting in scenario planning that we've been doing. We're forecasting about a 70% drop in 2020 in revenue and employment. So it's taking a, a really big hit, uh, and uh, and I think uh, so. That's one thing. Um, our international visitors are actually not as large as our domestic. The number of domestic visitors that we have every year. Our largest traveling group is British Columbians, followed by Albertans, um, and then people from Ontario, and then uh, uh, and then there's about 3.6 million Americans, 3.8 million Americans that come to British Columbia every year, and so um, uh, and then about 1.5 million from other markets like uh, whether it's Australia or Germany, the UK, China. Um, but there are businesses that are very reliant on those uh, U.S. or international markets, and they're obviously taking a very hard hit this year as, uh, as either our borders are closed or those uh, the mandatory two-week quarantine is in place for, for those coming from overseas. So it, uh, it's, taken, it's taking, some businesses are taking uh, a significant hit. Um, and, you know, even if we, British Columbians, each take a couple of trips this year, it won't make up for the shortfall of, uh, of international visitors. But that is one thing that we can do is we, we can do our part. And, uh, and this is an opportunity for us British Columbians also to see our own province. And, and again, encouraging, um, encouraging everyone to try something new. And we have, a, we have a website, explorebc.com, that has a lot of information, itinerary ideas. It's got links to ways to save. Um, it's got uh, links to organizations that can help you plan your trip. So there's um, really great ideas that have all been uh, vetted for businesses that um, and communities that are open during during this during COVID and uh, and so I encourage your listeners to check that out explorebc.com for more information. All right sounds good for sure people still planning and hoping to get a bit of a getaway in there. Uh, Maya Lang we'll leave it there for today thank you so much. Thank you for having me.